Hi guys, so in this lecture we are going to talk about a different topic named as posterior urethral valve. If an infant comes to you with a palpable bladder on examination, an antenatal ultrasound of the bilateral hydronephrosis and dilated and thickened bladder, plus the mother of the infant has oligohydroamnios. All these features are suggestive of posterior urethral valve, which is a congenital obstruction of the urethra caused by residual embryonic tissue during the genitourinary development of boys. Prevalence in boys is most likely due to the fact that the majority of the posterior urethral valve was caused by abnormal insertion of the Wolverian Wolfian duct, which we call Wolfian duct, which are not present in girls, okay, into the urethra. So what happened? There is abnormal insertion of the Wolfian duct into the urethra of boys, which leads to the posterior urethral valve which is not present in girls, so it is usually absent, it is more prevalent in boys, okay? Most common posterior urethral wall are identified on the antenatal ultrasound, which shows bilateral hydronephrosis thickened and dilated bladder and dilated proximal urethra. Dilation of the bladder is highly specific for the posterior urethral wall and it is not caused by more common genitourinary malformations, okay? Example, the urethropelvic junction obstruction and duplicated collective systems or vesicourethral reflex. So, posterior urethral wall lead to thickening of the bladder or dilatation of the bladder. So, if you see that the bladder is dilated or bladder is thickened, this suggests that this is specific for the posterior urethral wall. You don't have to worry that maybe urethropelvic junction obstruction can lead to this. No, it will not cause bladder dilatation and or complicated or duplicated collecting duct system. No, that will also not cause this. And vesicourethral reflex, that will also not cause this. So if the obstruction is severe and oligohydroamnios can result and lead to quarter sequence. So the baby may have the quarter sequence features such as the pulmonary hypoplasia, flattened feces and all these things, okay, flattened facial features, poly, uh, pulmonary hypoplasia, all these things. Other findings include the bladder distensions and weak urinary stream. So the patient may complain of baby not having a proper urinary stream, weak urinary streams and recurring urinary tract infections, okay. Let's talk about other differentials which includes the autosomal recessive polycystic polycystic kidney disease which is caused by the mutation in PKHT1 gene. PKHT1 gene affects the infant have numerous, numerous small renal cysts on the ultrasonography which is usually seen on the ultrasonography which is if not seen then this rules out the disease. A duplicated collecting systems results from the formation of multiple uretric bud during the kidney formation then you might have a duplicated collecting system. But the children may be asymptomatic or maybe may have a recurrent unit tract symptoms, but that too it affects only ipsilateral site. It can lead to ipsilateral hydronephrosis. They, you will not see bladder dilatation there. Okay. Next is urethropelvic junction obstruction, which is caused by narrowing or kinking of the ureter, which causes hydronephrosis only on the affected side. So bladder dilatation is very, very specific to posterior urethral wall, okay, which is usually not seen in any other condition especially seen in the boys and uh, most common cause of the severe obstruction obstructive uropathy in children posterior urethral valves are generally diagnosed prenatally and hallmark of the include the distension and thickening of the bladder and dilatation of the proximal urinary system 
okay now how are you going to diagnose the case of this so diagnosis of the posterior urethral wall is confirmed by using a voiding cystourethrogram so how you confirm the diagnosis is by using the voiding cystourethrogram Wedding cystourethrogram is performed by catheterizing the patient, injecting radio-opaque dye. What we do is we catheterize the patient, then we inject the radio-opaque dye and obtain the image during the wedding. Okay, the infant with the uh, posterior urethral valve undergo wedding urethrogram. Wedding cystourethrogram generally have dilated bladder and and approximately 25 to 50 percent of have some degree of the vesicourethral reflex also and also urethral dilatations due to severe outflow obstruction causing the caused by the posterior urethral valve so however the diagnosis is confirmed by visualizing the dilated proximal urethra so if there is dilated proximal urethra it suggests that the obstruction is beyond that okay so that time you figure out that okay this is dilated proximal urethra is a feature of this when the catheter is removed the catheter keep the valve open and must be removed before the end of the imaging so you should remove the catheter by the end of the imaging okay once the posterior urethral valve is confirmed by the voiding cystourethrogram infant should have a foley's catheter placed to temporarily relieve the obstruction so for initial treatment, you go for a Foley's catheter. When the infant condition is stabilized, then you go for cystoscopy, which allows direct visualization. And then for, during that procedure only, you ablate the wall, which is curative. So how you manage the case of posterior wall? You insert a Foley's catheter to relieve the obstruction for temporary basis. And then later, once everything is stabilized and everything is okay then you go for cystoscopy that time you directly visualize the obstruction and also ablate the valve okay and it is not usually a part of any syndrome so you don't need to do genetic evaluation here also nuclear testing is not needed okay because the nuclear testing such as the radioisotopes technetium or dimer crypto succinic acid testing is usually done to measure the renal excretion which is not needed here it is mainly needed when there is any underlying etiology of the kidney disease okay and renal biopsy is also not needed here renal ultrasound is also not needed and uh, therefore we go for weighing cystoerythrogram okay now next thing which we are going to talk is about the nipple discharges so how are you going to manage a case of nipple discharge so patient comes to you with the nipple discharge you have to do physical examination physical examination if it is normal then you go for ultrasound plus minus mammogram depending upon the age of the patient if you see any abnormality then you do the percutaneous biopsy but if you see this everything is normal on ultrasound and mammogram then you do galactoria evaluation and for galactoria evaluation if something is abnormal you treat the indication whatever you see is the factor causing galactoria and if everything is normal then you just do the routine screening but on physical examination if something is abnormal you do the breast imaging and biopsy and refer for to the breast surgeon okay so 
A benign physiologic nipple discharge is typically bilateral, multiductal, non-bloody and expressed only with manipulation of the breast. So common etiologies include the endocrine abnormalities, if there is hyperprolactinemia or thyroid diseases, maybe some medication such as antipsychotics or gastric motility agents, stress and excessive breast and nipple stimulation. So benign physiologic nipple discharge is usually bilateral and ductal also non-bloody expressed only with manipulation in geologies you should remember first two endocrine causes which includes the hyperprolactinemia and thyroid diseases second are the medications which you should remember is gastric motility agents and antipsychotics and then there is stress which can lead to this and excessive nipple stimulation or breast stimulation however nipple discharge can be present can be a presenting features of breast cancer Therefore, the patient requires further evaluation to exclude the malignancy with best examination, ultrasonography for the women of more than 30 years of age, and uh, yeah, and for women of more than 30 years of age, mammography. Okay, so remember, if the age is less than 30, you do the ultrasound, and if more than 30, you do the mammography. Patients with normal breast examination and normal imaging undergo a galactory evaluation. If you see that everything is normal, nothing was there on breast examination, ultrasound, everything is fine, then you do the galactory evaluation consisting of prolactin level, thyroid studies, and the patient with negative evaluation, and there is no risk of cancer, then you just reassure and observe as a routine screening with the clinical breast examination and mammography. But if you see that something else is there or any bothersome benign nipple discharge is there, then you might go for a ductal excision also okay cytological evaluation of the nipple discharge is usually not recommended because it's low sensitive and uh, next is the phytoestrone estrogen that is the soya and wild worms and vitamin e do not cause the nipple discharge and can be continued so if you someone is taking any kind of phytoestrogen or vitamin e or something supplement then you they can continue that because it does not does not affect the discharge thing and it it never causes nipple discharge okay mri is used to evaluate any metastatic disease for if you see the breast cancer or something but it's not indicated for nipple discharge percutaneous breast biopsy is used for exclusion of the malignancy if a patient has a palpable mass or any suspicious finding on the mammograph or ultrasound then you do that otherwise it's not needed so patient with a bilateral nipple discharge and negative evaluation breast examination imaging and laboratory studies have no increased risk of cancer therefore can be reassured, observed, and followed with a routine screening mammograph. That's all. All right, now let's move further. Let's talk about the childhood abstinence uh, epilepsy. What does that mean? Childhood abstinence epilepsy, what are the clinical features of this condition? There will be sudden impairment of the consciousness. Parent will complain that the child has staring spells. He keeps on staring at some object. Not only parents, teachers, friends, relatives, they might complain of this thing. Sudden impairment of consciousness, staring spells. Also, you see, when we try to move that person, everything is fine. That is preserved muscle tone. And, but if you try to wake that person up, like, hey, what's going on? Unresponsive to the stimulation. So he's not, un he's unresponsive to that situation. But the staring spells last less than 20 seconds. It's very short duration. Also, simple automatic auto automatism is there like suddenly you see some kind of 
or as man like he, he will wake up by himself provoked by hyperventilation so if someone is doing some kind of a exercise or something where they you see that there is increase respiration drive that time it is provoked and many episode per day can occur so more than one episode a day can occur of these tearing spells diagnosis for childhood abstinence seizures you have to do an eeg and you will see that three earth spike waves and uh, spikes and wave discharges which you will see three earth spikes and waves discharges on eeg suggesting of childhood abstinence epilepsy what comorbidity are associated with this if the patient is having attention deficit hyperactive disorder adhd associated with the childhood abstinence epilepsy or maybe anxiety and depression are also associated treatment is with the help of etosuximides you have to give the treatment with etosuximide so patient comes to you with a childhood absence epilepsy a common seizure disorder of the early school age children and it typically starts abruptly and are provoked by hyperventilations occur many times a day last for less than 20 seconds patients frequently describe classroom inattention frequent staring spells interrupting play i fluttering automatism like oral tics or something like that is happening to the patient along with the some comorbid psychiatric condition which includes the adhd depression or anxiety diagnosis is done with the help of electroencephalogram which shows the characteristics three hertz spikes and wave discharge patterns also this uh, cae childhood absence epilepsy is frequently well controlled with etosuximide monotherapy in contrast to their effects on other forms of epilepsy certain common antiepileptics such as carbamazepine can exacerbate the this epi- uh, childhood absence epilepsy and others such as phenytoin and phenobarbital are ineffective so do remember for childhood absence epilepsy some tell you that hey we don't have etosuximide can we go for phenobarbital phenytoin and phenobarbital so you'll say no why because it is ineffective it will not help and then they will ask you that hey we we do have carbamazepine can we give carbamazepine to this patient then you will say no absolutely not because it will increase the absence seizures okay so that's why you only go for etosuximide monotherapy and this childhood absence epilepsy are often spontaneous remits by early puberty with no major long term sequelae since so someone asked you is concerned that my child is having this for now you have given etosuximide do we need to do anything else or what is the sequelae what can happen in later in your future so you have to inform the parent that it usually remits by early puberty and also there are no long term sequelae so you don't need to worry about it when the patient has seizure free for 2 years antiepileptic medication frequently can be tapered so and the next question of the parent usually is do my child like my child need this medication nitrosuximide for a longer duration like for lifetime or something then you'll say once your child has seizure free episode for 2 years 2 years then you can come back and we will re- try to re- reduce the dose and taper and ultimately stop it yeah cognitive behavioral therapy some ask you about this do you want go for this so it has shown to reduce the frequency of the child psychogenic non epileptic seizures more commonly in the patients with epilepsy with uh, psychostressors or someone having the psychostressor leading to epilepsy there if you give cognitive behavioral therapy it is helpful but uh, it's not helpful in case of absence seizures okay pelvic thrusting rolling from side to side on office to tonus position uh often help 
like usually patient with psychogenic neuroepileptic seizures often have all these things yeah have a pelvic thrust seizures office donors position or rolling from side to side kind of moments okay now stimulant therapy they ask about the stimulant therapy then you'll say that uh it is effective for inattentive symptoms of the adhd which is a common comorbid conditions of the childhood ep- uh, absence epilepsy but this is not used here okay because stimulant medication carry a theoretical risk for decreasing the seizure threshold and therefore uh, we should be used caution this should be used cautiously for the comorbid condition even for adhd patient having absent seizures you will think about whether to use the seizure uh, stimulant therapy or not because that can precipitate the cae okay periodic monitoring of the transaminases is recommended in the patient with valproic acid if someone is taking valproic acid because valproic acid is a patotoxicity so you're not gonna do that and for ethosuximide what test you do is the because ethosuximide may precipitate agranulocytosis or side effect is agranulocytosis so that's why you can go for differential of the wbc count but not the patotoxicity or something like that okay periodic granulocyte monitoring can be recommended in the patient with ethosuximide use so yeah childhood absence seizures is characterized by brief lapse in consciousness less than 20 seconds often occur multiple times a day electroencephalogram is used which shows a pattern of three year generalized spikes wave activity and ethosuximide is the first line treatment yeah so that's it for this lecture thank you so much for listening